morning. We knew there was going to be an issue with that mic. It was a coin flip, and we found out early that it's not working. So let's go ahead and open up our Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to be picking things up at the page of uh, 973. If you don't have a Bible and want to follow along in a blue pew Bible with us. Uh, But before we get going, I just want to take a moment to shed light and spotlight on the women's conference that was held here yesterday. And despite having to cancel the Friday night worship portion due to weather, uh, yesterday was a full day with, I think, 85-plus women here. Uh, And from everything that I have heard, I wasn't invited, uh, but from everything that I have heard, it was an amazing experience Uh, walking through particularly the book of Colossians together and seeing the very real connections from the speaker, Summer Phoebus, uh, that that book has to uh, our day today. And I have uh, said it before, I probably don't say it enough, but I love pastoring a church where our people, and in this particular case our, our women, display a seriousness in their love for Jesus and his word, a compassion and fierce love for one another in this church, and then to see their lives as a mission field to the glory of God. And, and that it, just everything I have heard, that, and that was just on display uh, yesterday. And I pray that for many of uh, the women that were here yesterday, uh, most of which were from within grace, but some of that are not part of grace, uh, that that was just the beginning of what God is doing and wants to do in them and, and through them. And so thank you to Christy, our women's ministry director, and, and Sherry for your guys' leadership in uh, making this last weekend happen, and the many women who helped uh, to serve alongside them as well. So praise God for, for that. Well, as we get started, we are in Galatians now chapter 2. If you're just joining us for the first time or tuning in online for the first time, uh, we are preaching verse by verse through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a series of churches in the region of Galatia. And so to start off this morning, I want to go back in time to 1783. That was the year that the Revolutionary War ended. And there was a man named Richard Allen who was 23 years old. And it was at that time that Richard Allen committed his life to preaching and proclaiming the gospel. And so he was licensed with the Methodist Episcopal Church. And he began an itinerant ministry where he's traveling around regions in Pennsylvania, in Delaware, and in New Jersey uh, to proclaim the gospel. And he does that for the next few years until 1786 when he preached at the 5 a.m. service at St. George's Methodist Church in Philadelphia. You thought the 9 a.m. was a little too early, all right? You you guys just wait. You just wait when we roll out the 5 a.m. or... But from that moment, the city of brotherly love, as it was affectionately known as, became his home base. And Allen's ministry, within kind of the umbrella of St. George's Church, began to grow. Which you might imagine and would hope that the leadership of St. George's would be thrilled to see this young man coming and preaching and bringing people into their fellowship. But the leadership actually grew concerned. And the reason is that Richard Allen was black. He was a free black man in a now brand new country where slavery was still very much legal. It was just beginning to become illegal in some of the northern regions like Pennsylvania. 
But with this now uh, growth and fruitfulness in his ministry, there were about 50 free black women that were now regularly part of St. George's. And so out of fear that the non-white members would take over their church, the leadership of St. George's shifted some things, including and starting with the seating patterns within their church to better control and segregate their congregation. Well, soon after this, Richard Allen and two other men came to church, sat in the same pew that they normally sit in for a prayer service, kneeled in prayer as they normally do when a trustee came behind them and tapped him on the shoulder and said, now infamously, quote, you must get up. You must not kneel here. And after some confusion and a little back and forth questioning between um, Allen and the trustee, they were then threatened and approached by more men to be removed if they did not comply. And so Allen left, refused to take part in that service, and refused to worship in a church that saw him as a problem because of the color of his skin. And so eventually, trying to uh, kind of go up the ranks of the denomination to kind of plead their case, Allen, along with those 50 or so people that had been drawn to St. George's, were expelled from the church and they would go on to eventually begin the oldest traditionally black denomination in the United States, the African Methodist Episcopal, or AME for short, church. That is a single story that unfortunately had played out over and over and over again in the decades to follow in essentially every denomination in the U.S., where it led to some sort of split, where black Christians were refused fellowship and then had to start their own churches. And the reality was, the history is that the black church exists because they were, again, refused fellowship for ethnic and racial reasons. And as the case is, as individuals, as we think about our family histories, that we're all shaped by the stories of generations before us, so the history and the present day of the church is shaped by this history. It shapes the trajectory of the U.S. to present day. I'm going to shift to a guy named Derwin Gray. He's a pastor currently of Transformation Church in South Carolina. And he's author of the book that just came out this past year called Building a Multi-Ethnic Church. Uh, Gray was converted while playing for the Indianapolis Colts in the 90s and then began a life of ministry shortly after retiring from the NFL around the turn of the century. Gray, who was also black, uh, saw fruit in his own ministry, started getting invited to many different uh, churches and conferences, and really over the last 20 years has become a well-known preacher, not only in his local church that has grown, but in speaking across the country. And Gray said this in his book, again, that came out in 2021, and the quote's going to be on the screen. I was deeply bothered and confused by something I saw everywhere I preached. I was disturbed by the fact that the nightclubs I used to party in, the football teams I played on, the high school I attended, and the military in America were all ethnically diverse. But the churches and conferences I preached at were segregated gatherings. During the week, I lived in an ethnically integrated world. And on weekends, in the American Christian world, I traveled back in time to a segregated America. The history, and in many cases, current state of the church in America is an unfortunate display of what it looks like when belief and behavior are not aligned, especially amongst those who claim to believe in the gospel. 
And this morning, we're going to unpack a story, an episode that took place in the early church. It is one of the most dramatic and intense episodes of the New Testament. And it addresses conduct that is not in step with the gospel, when behavior deviates from and contradicts belief. We're going to look at what, what that actually looks like then and now, why it happens, and then the damage it can do. And conversely, I, I hope that we will also see the beauty, the wholeness, the vitality of what it looks like to align our conviction with our conduct. So that's how we're going to set the table for this morning. Galatians chapter 2, we're just covering a few verses, verses 11 to 14, and I'll read them all here. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? All right, well, when you preach through a book verse by verse, it can be easily easy to isolate each passage from the others. And so I constantly, as we go through a book like we do, want to lay out the kind of overall and remind us, what's the overall aim of this letter? Not just this passage, but what's, this, what's the overall aim of the letter? What's Paul's desire? Like, why did he sit down and take the time to write and send a letter? And what we have seen over and over again is that Paul is bringing clarity to the content of the gospel. We've seen that through chapter 1 and the beginning of last week, chapter 2. And we've seen that and we'll continue to see that throughout. But it's important also to keep in mind why. Why is Paul so concerned about the content of the gospel? The reason why right belief matters to Paul, why it ought to matter to us, is so that God's people can live lives shaped by that gospel. So the Holy Spirit is in you, right, to, to help you walk in step with, in the language from this passage, in step with the gospel you proclaim. So Galatians addresses these questions, like, what should I believe, so that it can answer the question, how then should I live? Right belief and right behavior. And when those misalign. It's a problem not only for you, but it limits your impact in pursuing the flourishing of others around you. And so let's, let's recall how last week's passage ended. And if you, if you didn't hear it, uh, Paul was recalling a story from years earlier at the church in Jerusalem, uh, where he and the leaders there, including Peter, who in this passage is referred to as Cephas, that's two different names for the same guy, Peter, Cephas, Peter, James, and John were unified in the content of the gospel. The gospel being the good news that sinners can be reconciled to God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The reality that we don't need to earn God's love, 
Salvation is not about just being a good person and getting rewarded for it or doing certain actions that put you in right standing where God says, now I can love you because I've seen you act like this. But the true good news is that God saves those lost in sin, which is all of us, through the actions of Jesus Christ. So there are works required for salvation. It's just not ours. It's that of Christ, that he was born. He lived the perfect life we could not live. And then he died the death that we deserved on the cross in our place so that those who put their faith in Jesus Christ will be restored before God for all of eternity. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And that's the gospel that Paul said, me and Peter, we agreed on. And then Paul, Barnabas, and Titus leave Jerusalem. But at some point, Peter comes to now visit them at their church up in Antioch. And this episode now happens there. So here's how we're going to unpack this passage. We're going to look at uh, what Peter did and why he did it and the impact it had. And then we're going to do the same thing for Paul. So first, what Peter did. The church in Antioch, like the church in Galatia that Paul is writing this letter to, which is why Paul is recalling this story, is made up of both Jewish and Gentile Christians. Gentile meaning, just simply, non-Jewish. Antioch was more ethnically diverse than the church that Peter was a leader in down in Jerusalem for the simple reason that Jerusalem was predominantly made up of Jewish people. So their church was predominantly, if not almost all, Jewish Christians. But Antioch was a multi-ethnic church because it was a multi-ethnic city. A church is not diverse just for diversity's sake or for good optics or look at us, we're diverse. A church seeks to be as diverse as the community it's trying to reach. And Peter, during his visit, was enjoying the freedom of the gospel. He was walking in step with the gospel, having this glad fellowship with the Gentiles. The the tense of the verb eating in in the Greek in that verse 12 indicates this wasn't a one-time thing, like he ate one meal with the Gentiles. No, this passage is indicating he was in a rhythm of, he was in the habit of eating with the Gentiles, indicating both table fellowship which then, as it is even some ways more so uh, now, that eating with somebody said a lot. That who you ate with said a lot about what you believe in your convictions in life. So I think this indicates he was both having table fellowship and partaking in the Lord's Supper during their worship gatherings. Doing this side by side with partnering with Gentile believers in the freedom of the gospel. Walking in step with it. You could say it this way, that his conduct was aligned with his conviction. Gentiles are brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ. And despite ethnic differences among them, despite a tense past in history that they both kind of existed within, they now have glad fellowship with no separation. But then, a group of men came from his church in Jerusalem. That is what from James means, meaning it was from the church that James was an elder at in Jerusalem. It does not mean that James supports their view or sent them for this purpose, because we saw last week that James also affirmed Paul in the same gospel. But these men came from his church, and they were of the, quote, circumcision party. Now, if you weren't here last week, and you aren't familiar with Galatians, that's a weird phrase for you. Like, let's just lay that down. Like, that's not a party I want to be a part of, or a club that I want to be a part of. 
But what that means is when, when, when he says that they're from the circumcision party, is that these were men who held to the wrong belief that they thought was right. That in order for Gentiles to be saved and included in the church, they needed to believe in Jesus and become culturally a Jew, which is marked amongst the men by the sign of circumcision. And then along with that belief that many even held that, even if they were circumcised, that Jews should not associate with Gentiles, but there should still be a separation, not worship with them or have table fellowship with them. So when they came, we don't know how many, but Peter sees them and he ships. The text says he drew back. He separated himself. He stopped associating with the Gentiles. And in this way, his conduct now no longer aligned with his conviction. Because by his actions, he implies that Jews and Gentiles cannot coexist in the church. That's what Peter did. Now, number two, why? Why Peter did it? It's pretty simple, but we should unpack it. Peter separated himself, as it says in verse 12, because of fear. Quote, fearing the circumcision party. This is important. Peter did not separate himself because of a wrong belief. He separated himself out of fear to live out the conviction of those beliefs. Fear of what might happen if he lived out his convictions overtook his courage. Do you see it? Fear of what might happen if he lived out his convictions was overtaken his courage to live out those convictions. It's possible to believe in the right things in principle, but not put those beliefs into practice because of fear. And in this way, Paul was playing the part of a hypocrite. I, I think the accusation of hypocrisy just gets thrown around all the time right now, right? Like everybody's a hypocrite, and in some ways that's true theologically, but in the way that you kind of hear it in the cultural conversation, that it's just a word, it's a dagger thrown out. And I think the actual true original definition of hypocrisy has been lost. The word originally came from ancient plays where the hypocrite was an actor. It was someone who would put on a mask... Not the kind of mask we're talking about now, but a full-faced mask to play the part of another person in a performance. So when you act hypocritically, the reason why that's now used today, it's meaning that you play a part that is not yours to play. Like a husband who takes his ring off before going out with his friends so he can play the part of a single man. It's hypocrisy. It's playing a part that is not yours to play. And this happens when a Christian plays the part of a non-Christian in their life out of fear. Peter knew what it was to walk in the freedom of grace. He knew the gospel, believed in the gospel, had an amazing experience in Acts 10 where he was one of the first ones to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and affirm that in them, that they were brothers in Christ. But he feared how these men from Jerusalem would respond. And so now his conduct was not in step with the gospel he believed. He was a Christian playing the part of a non-Christian. 
And to be honest, I think the reason why we can resonate with this is because Peter might not have had really evil motives here. He maybe just wanted to avoid an awkward interaction. Maybe this is how he justified it in his mind, thinking, I know the truth. I know the real gospel. I'm not going to change my mind, but I'm going to separate from these Gentiles just to avoid any tension that there doesn't need to be. Like, it's always a headache having to deal with them. Let me just do this. It's fine. It's one time. I'm just going to avoid that. Or, maybe more likely, Peter himself was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. Maybe he didn't want to threaten his own power back home. Maybe these men were pretty influential. Maybe they were big givers, big supporters of the ministry. We lost them. It would make things a lot tougher. So to keep the congregation happy, back home, to keep the offerings full, let me just do this, separate myself, even if I know personally that that doesn't reflect my belief. But whatever it was, I hope you can see how easily this can and does happen today. When fear makes us act like hypocrites. Is it possible maybe we should all take a moment to ask ourselves, if you profess to believe in the gospel, where are you most tempted in your life to play the part of a non-believer? Is it at work? Just be easier if you just don't play that part to fit more in. Maybe it's more lucrative for you if you don't really let that be known. Maybe it's amongst your family. And just the tension at home if, if I really live out these convictions. Is it a certain group of friends? Around those friends, I don't want to play that part. It's too hard. Friends at school, different from the friends at church. Is it within your online communities? just don't want that to be known. Not because you're doubting what you believe or you're doubting your convictions, but there's a fear of living them out for any number of reasons. But probably most often tied to some desire to please others, which Paul talked about earlier in Galatians, or to be seen or treated a certain way, or there's some kind of social or financial benefit or power dynamic at play. If we just played this part. And perhaps you've convinced yourself like Peter and like I have more times than I can count that it's okay even. That, that, that you're playing the long game. If I fit in now, then maybe I can be a bigger impact later when really it's fear. And it's conduct that is out of step with the truth of the gospel. That's what Peter did. I think that's why he did it. But now what impact it had as is always the case, when we sin, it always has collateral damage beyond our own lives. Because sin separates. It separates us from God first and foremost, but then it separates us from those we sin against or those who are watching our conduct sin against others. And so Peter, out of fear, sinned against his Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ and indicated to them that in that moment, their personhood did not mean as much to him as his own status in the church. And in order to protect himself, he did not recognize the imago Dei, the, the image of God in them. But also, the text told us, his sins separate himself from his Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. Look again at verse 13, if your Bible's still open. 
and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray. Peter's actions were not just limited to him. It spread to others. When conduct is not aligned with conviction, it leads others astray as well. Uh, Another translation says that Barnabas was carried away, right? It's like getting caught in a riptide. You ever been caught in a moment where it kind of freaked you out a little bit when you're in the ocean? You realize you're getting further and further from shore. It's this drift. It's this carrying away. Sometimes you don't even realize it's happening in the moment. You're just going along with the current. And that's the word language that Paul uses, that when, when even those around you do not um, want to or desire to have their conduct separate from their conviction, that they get carried away. And Paul makes the point, even Barnabas, you see that? Barnabas was, last week, Barnabas was the one traveling with Paul, bringing the relief to the church, and then affirming the content of the gospel. Barnabas is one of his closest friends in the ministry, and he says, even Barnabas was there. And even he separated himself when he saw Peter do it. This is the impact of misalignment. This is why we need to be reminded to never allow yourself to justify sin. It's so easy. But in order to do that, it not only dishonors the Lord, but it sins against others. You fail to honor their full personhood for personal gain. The Jew-Gentile divide all throughout the New Testament was a theological divide, but it was not only a theological divide. It was very much also an ethnic divide. And there was an inability for the Jews to honor the Gentiles as those made in his image who by the blood of the cross are now on common ground with them, but that was too hard for them, so there had to be a hierarchy. There had to be a separation. But the conduct of the gospel is to honor, again, that personhood because of the truth of the gospel. That when we're all on common ground, when we're all in need of grace, we're all restored through Christ, it, any kind of sin, but especially a sin that is based on prejudice or racism, is a misalignment. And it's most horrifically done when it's done by those who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. Listen, it is sobering to me that in the history of the church, there are men who would stand up at a pulpit like this one, faithfully exposit and preach Galatians chapter 2, share the good news of the gospel, that those can be restored in Christ, had the content right and then would go home to lay out instructions to the slaves they owned for the upcoming week. How easily that has been done. In 1786, Richard Allen could be told in a church, you can't kneel here. And you could say, well, that was a long time ago. Well, there's also the point that 169 years later, in 1955, Rosa Parks was told on the bus, you can't sit here. A history like that traumatizes an entire culture. And so it's no wonder that any time race comes up, especially in churches, it just gets a little hard. It just gets a little tense. It's an awkward space where tensions and get high and blood just starts to race a little bit higher. But if anyone in our society should understand the stain of racism, it should be the church 
Because we know at the heart of it, it's sin. It's a sin problem that, as one pastor put it, made skin a problem. It's why local churches in the U.S. are 10 times more segregated than the neighborhoods they exist in. And 20 times more segregated than the churches and the the schools in their same area. And it's not just race. You could go down the line of individual and systemic sin. Sexual sin is failing to see the personhood in others. Abuse is failing to see the full personhood in another for personal gain. Covering the abuse of others in order to protect power or hierarchy is failing to see the personhood of others. And at its core, it feeds our own desires out of fear. We fear of losing something. And it not only damages our souls, and not only damages the souls of those we sin against, but it also damages, here's what's important, the souls of those who are watching. The following generations. Hypocrisy spreads like a virus. We infect others before realizing how much damage we're actually doing. And again, I am haunted by this. Not only as a Christian, but as a pastor, how easy it is to get the content right, but then go lead a life that doesn't reflect it in its conduct. May it break our hearts. May it humble us and lead us to want to know how can that be overcome, which leads us to Paul. Let's see what Paul did, why he did it, and what impact it had. Number one, what Paul did. Paul's in Antioch, and he sees this happen before his eyes. The Jews separating themselves from the men, once the men in Jerusalem showed up, and he publicly rebukes Peter. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, this is a big deal, a big moment, Peter and Paul are the two largest influences in the early church. The book of Acts is really just tracking their two stories, the first half Peter, the second half Paul. Any conflict with these two would be an eye-opener to anyone looking on. And it would spread throughout not only their church, but I imagine the churches all throughout the region pretty quickly. Did you hear that Paul just called out Peter? It might be natural to think, and know it was for me, to think, Paul, if you got something against Peter, maybe pull him aside. Maybe figure that out behind closed doors. Don't let others see that. Or, Paul, is it even smart to call out Peter at all? Is it that big of a deal? Here. Can we just let that one go? I don't want to risk destabilizing everything. We're in a pretty vulnerable time. We're just trying to get things off the ground here. Yet, Paul does not even hesitate. Paul does not take some time to pray about it. He directly and decisively calls it out. And before we see why, does this mean that we should just start going around Grace Church and just calling everybody out publicly? Hey, hand the mic over. I got something to say. And just kind of go around and and anytime we see conduct that is not in line with the follower of Christ, should we call it out? Well, I think we need to balance it out with the rest of Scripture. I think we need to take context into account. Right, with Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says to take the plank out of your own eye before taking the speck out of another's eye. He doesn't say don't remove that speck, but you just make sure you're clear-eyed first. Matthew 18, if someone sins against you, go to them personally first. If they don't repent, bring another with you. There is a progression there, especially when somebody sins against you. 
But public sins often require public rebuke. And I would say especially amongst leaders whose sin has a better chance of leading others astray to a higher degree. So a love for a brother, unity in the gospel, does not mean you never correct behavior or call them out, but that you ensure that you are doing it in a way that is a love for him, a love for others, a love for the gospel, and not as an opportunity to cut them down because it will naturally prop you up. All right, why did Paul do it? Paul called Peter out for a simple yet vital reason, to preserve the truth of the gospel. Do you see now what Paul is communicating to the church in Galatia between last week's passage and this week's passage? Last week, Paul set out the content of the gospel before Peter, Paul, and James in order to preserve the truth of the gospel. And now he calls Peter out, who he just agreed on the content with, for wrong conduct of the gospel. But both are done with the same motivation. That's why he puts them back to back. Content and conduct are both required to preserve the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. That, that the, the, the gospel, which I walked through earlier, is not just about knowing the facts. It's about the good news that transforms the good news that transforms us from the inside out, that comes with a renewed mind and a new heart and, over time, a changed life. Uh, Ray Ortland writes in his book, The Gospel, which we handed out to every member, uh, I think, back in 2020. He writes this, quote, Christ's love is too great to have allowed us to go on with self-centered lives. He loves you too much to allow you Go on living with a self-centered life. Loves you too much not to change you and restore you to the image bearer he has made you to be. Most notably seen in the way that he empowers us to treat and love others as fellow image bearers. Especially those in the body of Christ. I think to be fully human in Christ is to have the eyes to see the full humanity of others. And then live accordingly. Last, what impact it had, Paul's actions, what impact did it have? We're not told in the text how Peter responded to this. Do you notice that? Did he get mad? Was this an argument? Did he quickly repent? We we don't know in the moment, but I do think we can glean from the rest of Scripture that this did restore Peter and their relationship. That he was able to see how his conduct was not in step. And that their personal relationship then continued. Because later on in Acts chapter 15, which is the timeline from what he's talking about here to the letter to the Galatians. Paul and Peter are united once again in Jerusalem. This time at the big conference that they called to denounce the Judaizers, the circumcision party. That they once again were standing shoulder to shoulder. And so again, see this, know this, that true friendship, t- true unity amongst brothers and sisters in Christ is not destroyed when sin is called out the right way. But when it is done the right way and received the right way, that can actually strengthen a relationship amongst a brother and sister in Christ. But also, this was a decisive moment in the life of the early church. 
Think about this. It kept the church unified between Jews and Gentiles in the same fellowship. If they let this go, if Paul let this go, and then it would lead to another time of letting it go, and now people see that both Paul and Peter saw it happen but let it go, you know what would have happened? There would have been a movement alongside the movement that is the right conduct of the gospel that said, you know what, let's have our Jewish churches and our Gentile churches. We all understand we believe the same thing, but it's just easier if we just separate. I can affirm your brother or sister of Christ, but we should not fellowship together. And you would have a case in the early church that would begin to spread where you'd have one Lord but two Lord's tables. And we know that would have a lot of damage because this is the history of our country in a lot of ways. We understand how it can fracture a church body and the fellowship it has. And they avoided that in the early church because in part of this moment. You know, for the first 400 years, it's a part of church history that most, especially Protestant, we think the church started with Martin Luther, love Martin Luther, but the church went far before him. And in the early church, the first 400 years, it's universally agreed that while they were persecuted throughout the Roman Empire, the number one reason the church grew and grew and grew and grew was not dynamic preaching. It was not great music. It was not state-of-the-art facilities. It was the attractiveness of the local church community and their love for one another. That's why the church grew in the midst of persecution that they were unified in the gospel. In the midst of diversity in demographics, headlined by ethnic diversity, Jews and Gentiles were reconciled in this new movement that was not seen anywhere else in the Roman Empire. And it was the outcome of reconciliation with God through Christ that then led to reconciliation with brothers and sisters in Christ across those lines. And so as we wrap up, there's a lot to dwell upon in this passage. There's a lot to dwell upon in our own lives, both individually and collectively. And I would ask, and when I ask questions to probe your own heart in this, for us as a church to probe our hearts, that's not to shame us. That's not to raise guilt. But it is to give grace to you. To be honest with your own heart and give us a renewed opportunity to return to the truth of the gospel where there might be a misalignment in any number of ways. Because let's be honest, at times we all act like hypocrites, don't we? At times, we all play a part that isn't ours to play. And so I don't want to just say that now to let us all off the hook, that, guys, we all do it. Let's just do what we can and get better. But to remind us that while we are in constant need of forgiveness and restoration, while we often fall out of step with the gospel in our conduct, the way back is not shaming ourselves back to the path or even just trying harder. But it is refocusing our eyes on the one who transforms. Speaking of Martin Luther, he actually said in his famous commentary on the letter to the Galatians on this passage that he takes great comfort from it. And I want to show you the quote as to why. He says, Such errors and sins of the saints are set forth in order that those who are troubled and desperate may find comfort and that those who are proud may be afraid. No man has ever fallen so grievously that he could not have stood up again. On the other hand, no one has such a sure footing that he cannot fall. 
If Peter fell, I too may fall. If he stood up again, so can I. And then lastly, this gives us hope for our church that we may value and pursue the right conduct of the gospel with the same energy and passion that we pursue the right content of the gospel. Or again, as Ortland wrote in his book, that we would understand that gospel doctrine only bears fruit if it is proclaimed in the midst of a gospel culture in the local church. So let us be those agents of reconciliation in our belief and our behavior. Let us be humble enough to admit and repent when we or others are not in step with the gospel. And pray that we would be a church that increasingly looks like and reflects the kingdom of God. Let us learn from the mistakes of the church in our own country's history, not for the sake of optics, not for the sake of getting praise from others, but to be able to give glory to God as we display the power of the gospel and strive to remove any barriers we might have at Grace Church to fellowship here because of our desire to be unified in the gospel. The Bible ends in the, with this picture in Revelation and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Let's pray. Father, we... Thank you for that finishing note, Lord, from Revelation 5. Lord, we thank you that that day is coming. And Lord, as we wait for it, let us work towards it. Father, we ask for the grace and for the courage to walk in step with the gospel. And Father, for any of us or all of us who are feeling some measure of, of guilt and struggle with this, Lord, the inability to do what we feel like you're calling us to do, Lord, I pray that we would not shame ourselves, that we would not stay in that space, that we would not shift blame to others or let ourselves off the hook either, but, Lord, that we would fix our eyes upon you and understand that you will restore, you will redeem, you will put us back on the path where we can walk in step. And, Lord, I pray for us as a church that we truly would strive to remove any barriers that we have consciously or subconsciously that would uh, create barriers of fellowship here at Grace and that we would allow our convictions and our conduct as a church to align with the convictions of the gospel that we proclaim. Lord, let it be all for your glory, our joy, and the flourishing of others around us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand and sing together that he will hold me fast as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. <laughs>